0: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design.
1: I'm sitting here with uh, Lisa Brooks here. We're going to talk about some fun stuff today. Um, Lisa, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say I'm a little nervous, though.
1: So. It's okay. You're only in front of a live audience of thousands of Human Factors professionals. It's okay. We're all good. Uh, streaming across you know, what our channels, the official HFES channels. Anyway, it's all good. No sweat. We're all good. Uh, so you're here to talk about uh, something specifically, the MSD Solutions Lab. But I want to back up really quick before we talk about that. Can you just tell the audience at home who you are and a bit of your background so we know who we're talking to?
2: Happy to. Happy to. So my name is Lisa Brooks. And I've been in the field of ergonomics and human factors and safety for 30 years. That's really hard for me to admit. In May of this year, I crossed over that 30-year mark. But I started out as a corporate ergonomist for Alcoa back in 1992 and then moved over and was the corporate ergonomist and safety manager for International Paper and then spent over 11 years with GE. Um, in their, as their corporate ergonomist and safety manager. Um, and then I left and went to ORCHSC, an organization that is a health, safety, environment, networking, and services firm. And two years ago, that company was bought by the National Safety Council. So for two years now, I've been a member or a, not a member, I've been an employee of the National Safety Council. So that's how I got to where I am. I'm a proud Michigan grad, so I'm going to the Michigan alumni dinner tomorrow night for the first time. I haven't been to HFES in a few years. I've been to other professional conferences, so I'm just delighted to be back here.
3: Yeah it's great to have you here as well thank you very much for giving the time um what a lot of people have said is they're really valuing this new networking time um that is a bit unfamiliar to everybody at the moment so it is fantastic that you've given up some of that time to spend with us could you give us a bit of an insight into what the uh, national safety council actually does um
2: Well, fantastic. And I made sure I had, you know, information to make sure I said this correctly. But the National Safety Council is America's leading nonprofit safety advocate. And they have been for more than 100 years. So it's a mission-based organization working to eliminate all the leading causes uh, of preventable death and injury. And uh, the National Safety Council has pillars in workplace, roadway, and impairment. So we create a culture of safety, not only keeping people safer at work, but also beyond the workplace so that they can live their fullest lives.
1: Now, we're here to talk about the MSD Solutions Lab. What what is that? There's some some letters, it's an acronym, it's a lab. What does it do?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Great question. So the MSD Solutions Lab, or the Musculoskeletal Disorder Solutions Lab, it's a groundbreaking National Safety Council strategic initiative. It was uh, uh, born or established in June of 2021, and it's funded by Amazon. It focuses on addressing musculoskeletal disorders, which, as we all know, are the most common workplace injury or illness. So in the lab's approach is to engage key key stakeholders, conduct research, identify new technologies, innovate solutions, and then scale the results so that all workplaces across not only the US but the globe can benefit. Um, There are really, we have four pillars um, that we operate under. So the four pillars are engage, research, solve, and amplify.
3: So, so ovic- why was it created in the first place?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, um, again, uh, going back to the number of musculoskeletal disorders. So musculoskeletal disorders are the largest category of workplace injuries and illnesses and the leading cause of disability. Worldwide, so not only in the U.S. So the World Health Organization reports that musculoskeletal disorders are the leading cause of disability worldwide. In fact, um, approximately 1.7 billion, with a B, people have musculoskeletal uh, conditions across the globe, Um, and the in the U.S. um, According to the National Safety Council's Injury Facts, um, just shy of um, a quarter million. Uh, musculoskeletal disorder injuries were severe enough in 2020 to cause folks to to uh, take days away from work so it's it's a huge issue and costing so according to the Liberty mutual um, safety index msd injuries are costing our businesses approximately 16 billion dollars each year so it's a it's a pervasive issue in terms of the, the numbers but I think it boils down to the pain and suffering of people and workers and um, the National Safety Council said this is an issue that we felt that we brought something unique to the table that we could help and address, address or explore ways to address it that hadn't been um, attempted before so we could bring all different players together to participate um, so it, it really is there it's just the largest pain and suffering issue, and we we wanted uh, we stepped up to the table and said we'll we'll do our part to address this
1: and it's an incredibly important issue, and I think th- the big question for me is like you mentioned that this was just set up recently and and the question is why now
2: that's that's a very important issue or a very important question because you know. <laughs> It's not like this is brand new. We've had musculoskeletal disorders. It's been the largest category for years. And, in fact, I would say a lot of companies are having a renewed emphasis in fatal and serious injury prevention. Um, and they define that also to include life-altering or life-impacting. But somehow musculoskeletal disorders didn't get in that equation. So I think it's, it's important for, for uh, this initiative Um, timing is important because there's so much effort being on fatal and serious injuries and and leaving behind musculoskeletal disorders. So, recognizing that musculoskeletal disorders are life-impacting, life-altering, but unlike the other fatal and serious injuries, there's no alarms going off. They don't demand attention. So, um, this is a way to bring visibility to this issue that because of all the great and necessary emphasis on fatal and serious injuries, um, somehow the the musculoskeletal disorders have kind of gotten left behind. So it's, it's bringing new visibility to it. And I think that all of the pieces fell in place. You had an organization like the National Safety Council willing to step up. You had an organization like Amazon willing to fund it. And so all the pieces were in place to say, let's take this on. Let's address it.
3: That's really um, interesting because it, it's obviously made it that that imperative um, for right now. But you mentioned four pillars earlier. Could you tell us a bit, expand a bit more on the four pillars and, t- and tell us what they actually mean to you?
2: Absolutely. So the pillars um, are engage, research, solve, and amplify. And let's talk about engage. Engage is bring means bringing all of the right people a diverse set of minds together to address this topic. So um, in engaging, you know, important stakeholders are the workers, are the companies, but also are the solution providers, the innovators, academia. So all of these different players um, contribute and are necessary in order to come up with a solution. And uh, so one of the things, one of the, the first initiatives That was um, stood up as part of the uh, MSD Solutions Lab was an advisory council. And that advisory council, let's see, I wrote down here, currently has 62 members, and uh, the 62 members represent 43 different um, organizations. Um, But the advisory council, again, has representations from academia, has representations from business, has representations from consulting from solution providers, from innovators, all to come together to help be part of this and really advise the National Safety Council on on this, uh, our strategy and approach for addressing musculoskeletal disorders. Um, So that's the engage part. Um, The next pillar is research. So an important thing is for um, us to understand what is the current state of the research? Where are the gaps? And then... Um, be able to support filling those gaps by uh, research grants and working with different universities, connecting um, research organizations and um, and businesses, so that the practical application of that research actually can can meet a, ver- a new standard. So, so then, the third pillar is solve, and really, it's it's to find new ways and. Um, um, communicate all of the fantastic ways that we already know about to, to address musculoskeletal disorder. So it might be um, using new technologies or it might be using existing technologies in new ways. So things we're doing there, some innovation challenges, some kind of hackathons, but um, really innovative ways to find new solutions to address musculoskeletal disorders. And then the fourth pillar is amplify, and this is about getting the message out to the masses, right? Making sure that all companies are aware that this is a need. I mean, there honestly are a lot of small and mid-sized organizations that don't even fully understand that this is an issue that's related to the workplace that should be addressed. So it's making sure the message is out there, providing resources, information to help them begin to address this pervasive issue, Um, And and part of the um, Amplify, um, or or a very important part, is an initiative that we've called the MSD Pledge. And this is an opportunity for for companies to raise their hand and say, hey, I want to be a part of that call to action. And I want to, uh, my company will also commit to do their part, both in addressing the musculoskeletal disorders in their own organization, but then share what they learned
1: along the way. So those four steps, uh, engage, research, solve, amplify. I have a question about amplify. Um, Communication is really important to us here. Obviously, we're on a podcast. But (laughs) one question I have is sort of how do you reach those mid-level companies? Like what communication strategies are used?
2: that's a good question and i think we're developing them additional methods as we go along the nice thing about the national safety council is that the national safety council has between 14 and 16,000 members of which the majority are small and medium enterprises so we have an arm into those organizations Um, where we have an avenue to communicate to folks that maybe have not at this point been addressing musculoskeletal disorders. So we're using, you know, their existing infrastructure. And honestly, um, our uh, funding partner, Amazon, also has a reach in all of their suppliers that really is unparalleled. So um, just those two communication methods alone, but we are reaching out and working with all different kinds of professional organizations. In fact, I need to acknowledge that the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society has agreed to be a professional partner uh, with the uh, MSD Solutions Lab. We're reaching out to other professional organizations in the ergonomics and safety and health disciplines to also be professional partners to help us reach new people, new organizations in different ways. So, uh, And I'll be honest with you, (laughs) if you guys have... um, suggestions on ways to reach new people our ears are always uh, open and we're, we welcome new ideas
1: well you can always come on a podcast and just let people know about it that's one and You know
2: what? <laughs> i have you know i um was with the national safety council when we stood up this initiative and um, so i had the pleasure of being part of being there from the very beginning but i am a technical advisor i don't have a the luxury of working on it day to day. Unfortunately, my colleague sitting over here in the corner, um, Ram Michaela, is the subject matter expert for this. But Corrine Teller is also, she's the director that we hired. And Ram and Corrine would love to participate in another podcast uh, going in the future. We
1: got to get you hooked up with this guy, Mr. Barry Kirby. He can.
3: Okay, Barry,
2: they're ready. (laughs) They're ready for you. Or maybe the question is, are you ready for them? (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm always up for a challenge. That sounds brilliant, and some content that we would absolutely be able to love to share on Twelve or Two. Um, you talked about the talked about the pledge, the MSD pledge. Um, mm-hmm. Just how powerful a tool is that for you in your armory um, to get people uh, to get companies and organisations engaged?
2: Well, actually, um, if I'm being honest, I will tell you it took off faster than than I thought it would. Um, you know, we had aspirations when we first announced the pledge that we would by year end um, have commitment from a hundred different companies. Well, we passed that mark. We're already at 126. 126 different companies have taken the pledge. Um, so, and, and really, because the pledge is about doing the right things in their own organization, but it's also about sharing what they learn along the way with um, with others for the, the the good of everyone that I think it, it really has power. So, um, and, you know, if if you look at it, what they commit to, they commit to reduce risks. So to really look at the MSD hazards and risks in their own organization and invest in solutions to, to reduce those risks. They commit to innovate and collaborate. Um, they commit to build an organizational culture that values safety. And again, in many organizations, these things are already there but it's about sharing them and then commit uh, to a significant reduction in, in the risks. Now, the truth is we really tried to focus this initiative on risk, knowing that if people do the right things in terms of addressing um, MSD risks in the workplaces, that the injuries will take place, take care of themselves. Because with many of the small and medium-sized organizations that maybe haven't uh, been addressing musculoskeletal disorders, it's... Possible and even likely that you'll see an uptick in numbers before you see a, de- a decline, because they first got to understand where their hazards are, getting employees to tell them where the issues are. You, we expect to see a, in some organizations to see an uptick, but by focusing this initiative on risk, and having uh, and um, getting organizations to ad- address the risk, the MSD risk in the, in their companies. Built into their operations, we uh, feel that the uh, injury numbers will overall come down as an entity.
1: So, so you mentioned um, sort of reducing significant reduction in risk is, is what you said. Now I'm I'm wondering what does that actually look like? Is it is it a metric that they have to meet? Like is a certain percentage? Is it just a, in general? A, like what what counts as significant?
2: So that's that's a good question. So we have really struggled with that because you know. You guys in the in the field understand that there's not one recognized way to measure uh, MSD risk. Um, there's there's many different tools available that ha- each of them have different strengths and different um, um, uh, gaps. So we've created something called an MSD index, and that MSD index really looks at your systems around risk culture, collaboration, and innovation, um, and we are actually in the final stages of of refining our first. It's a questionnaire, and we will um, ask that all uh, companies that have taken the pledge they do the index on an annual basis, so we can evaluate their efforts. So it's it's understanding that they are using you know what tools that they are using, what systems do they have in place, how are they sharing, are they sharing? And I will be honest in in the process. We also ask for um, um, actual injury numbers um, but that's not what we're measured on we are um, capturing the injury numbers so that we can assess as a whole is right. this initiative making a difference so
3: but just I guess following on that because I've seen a number of initiatives that are made with the with the best of intentions you know we companies pledge to do the right thing by climate change companies pledge to do etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> How do we know that the companies aren't massaging the numbers or just basically make, you know, when they're reporting into you, that they're not just making something just to tick the box, they're actually delivering, I guess, the the real view, because it's a real view that's valuable, isn't it? So how do we know that they're they're actually doing that rather than just making it look good on their management charter?
2: Yeah, so that's an an interesting question. We are working to address that and providing opportunities for companies to, say, get Third-party audited. So, if they report in on the MSD pledge, they have an opportunity to say to, to really get it to validated by a third party. So, we're working on systems. So, the question you raised is actually one that we are, um, I wouldn't say struggling with, but but actively working on now. So, to make it a, a meaningful, credible uh, index.
1: We have just a couple minutes left. Um, I want to open up the floor to you. Is, is there anything else that you want so, uh, our listeners, anyone watching on the live stream right now to kind of know about the MSD Pledge or anything about um, the MSD Solutions Lab?
2: You know, it is evolving every day and we're adding more resources, more opportunities. So I would encourage folks to um to watch the progress and engage. Um, the website is nsc.org MSD and everything related to the entire initiative, to the pledge, if you think you're willing, you know, raise your hand as a company to, to be part of the pledge. You know, one of the things we're working on is mechanisms to collect and then share um, effective practices. You know, different organizations have libraries of solutions that work. We're looking at ways to do that because we, we, we want to um, minimize reinventing the wheel. If there's a solution, effective solution already out there, make it available. So, you know, this has only um, been in existence for a short time, so we're still working on it. And we're open to suggestions and input, so reach out to us uh on uh the um on the website and we'd love to hear from you and, and engage with anyone who's willing
1: <laughs> well lisa thank you so much for being on the show we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back after this
2: thanks everyone
0: human factors cast brings you the best in human factors news interviews conference coverage and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce but we can't do it without you the human factors cast network is 100 percent listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving. So stop by patreon.com slash cast to see what support level may be right for you thank you and remember it depends
1: and we're back here for more coverage of <laughs> the 66th annual human factors and ergonomic society welcome back <laughs> welcome to the show camille oh, paris thank you for coming back you've been on the show before we talked to you when uh, when you and Chris were going up for the presidency, and it's kind of weird to see Chris going kind to of complete his <laughs> presidency now, and now we're moving on to the next set. Um, but just for those of you, for those listeners or folks who aren't familiar, could you just give folks a little bit more about yourself? Who you, who are you and and what are you all about?
4: Sure, sure. So my name's uh, uh, Camille Paris, and uh, I'm an associate professor at Texas A&M University. And um, I do research on uh, integrating human factors into high-risk industrial settings. So think chemical plants, um, refineries, oil and gas, that sort of stuff. Um, the higher risk, uh, more complicated, the better. And I've um, been doing that for, I guess, about nine years now. That's about how long I've been at Texas A&M. And before that, I was at the University of Houston Clear Lake and uh, actually stood up a, a program there in uh, applied cognitive psychology, which is essentially human factors and ergonomics, and um, was there for about uh, seven years and uh, got my Ph.D. from Rice University in uh, cognitive psychology. And uh, just really, I'm loving being here at HFES and uh, seeing all my friends and uh, seeing the students (laughs) that are getting to, you know, learn all about it and uh, having you all here. This is really a cool, it's a cool thing to have you all here. And it's great to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, we love being here. We love having you here. Uh, And I am especially jazzed about the topic that we're going to talk about today. And it's communications of human factors two people who maybe not be human factors and two people who are human factors. It's just communication within human factors is a whole, whole thing. So can, <laughs> let's talk about the status of communication of human factors. It's really important to us as podcasters and practitioners uh, that, that communication be effective. So what is the current state today? What does it look like?
4: Well, that's a, uh, it, of course it depends on where you are and what industry you're in, I think is a huge piece of it. And uh one thing about the state of communication is uh, I want to give uh, you some uh, you all some kudos is um, after the last time I was here we had talked uh, kind of just extemporaneously come up with this idea of a a so what <laughs> webinar and uh, to have a scientist come on and uh, have a webinar and then have a practitioner there at the same time talking about a paper and we've had a couple of those and they've been really well received so uh, be on the lookout we're going to have another one um, coming up and uh, with the Society of Petroleum Engineering and uh, talk about automation and Um, So we're really looking forward to that. And so that's, I think, a very important uh, step with regard to this, you know, translation and communication of the science to people who actually are going to be using it. And uh, one of the things that I have found in my work with folks who are in, again, primarily petrochemical, oil and gas, um, that sort of thing, is they typically don't think of human factors as a scientific discipline. Um, I usually get people who think of it as factors that are associated with a human, meaning that that's fatigue or that's uh, individual differences. Like maybe they had a fight with their significant other before they came to work or um, things like that, lists of things that you could associate with a human, but nothing to do with any kind of scientific discipline or profession. Lord knows not a profession. And so there's that component. And then there's another group that thinks of human factors as meaning uh, specifically uh, safety culture and just has to, because it's about re- humans. And so I try to, uh, I've come up with this method um, of communicating Um, sort of this the methods and discipline around human factors that I was introduced to initially as a graduate student and it's called the interactive behavior triad and um, so the idea is to be able to predict how people are going to behave that you need to have information about three things thus the interactive behavior triad and uh, you need to have information about the task the person's doing you need to have information about uh, the person who's doing the task, and you need to have information about the tool that the person is using to do that task. And when you have that information, then you can better predict the, how people are going to behave. And I was first um, introduced to this um, in an experimental way, or the we were reading a paper and um, and this was actually Mike Byrne was talking about it with re- regard to cognitive modeling and that most of the time what happens is people will do experiments and do these two-way interactions. Like they'll see, um, you know, can we predict human behavior if we do a test or an experiment with the task and the tool? Or with the task and the person, or the person and the tool, but very rarely do they look at all three. And uh, you really that can make a difference. So if you have a crap tool, and um, and you know a lot about the task, and um, and you have a, a specific task and specific attributes of the person, like what kind of cognition, you know, are they using semantic memory, or um, are they using, um, you know, long term memory, those kinds of things the the tool, the design of the tool can make a difference in how they're going to behave. And I was just really struck by it um, at the time, you know, I'm a young, impressionable graduate student. And, you know, it just made so much sense to me. And it was an aha for me. And I started seeing it everywhere. Right. Kind of like when you discover human factors, you just see the bad human factors everywhere. And I started seeing that. And then it kind of went in the back of my mind. But then I started thinking of examples. And when I was trying to explain human factors to people who were not human factor specialists, um, realizing that this could be helpful. And the example that I use a lot as as a professor was writing a paper when students need to write a paper. And um, that whole uh, task. So the task, breaking that down and saying, okay, so the task here is to you know generate uh, the content from the class and being able to summarize it and um, you know in a way that your professors can going to be happy with. It's not super risky. Maybe you do it three or four times a, a semester um you know these are so these are the things you know for the task itself which is what is you're trying to accomplish and then the person's got to use some long-term memory they've got to use their upper extremities they've got to use visual scanning they've got to use you know what are the things that they're needing to do um their motivation is important and then we start talking about the tools and one of the things that's always fun when I do this in presentations is because I'll say, okay, anybody out there ever written a paper with a typewriter? And of course, depending on the age of the audience, you know, of course, I always raise my hand because I used a typewriter. And, uh, and then everybody just remembers, oh, that's right. That's, you can write a paper and submit it without using a word processor. So writing a paper or the task is not using the word processor. That's the tool to, to accomplish the task. And so if it is I've got that task, I keep that task constant, and I use a typewriter, and let's say that my motivation, I've got a student who is straight-A student. She's really motivated to make sure that she does really great on this paper. It may not be whether she uses a typewriter or computer, Maybe it won't make that big of a difference in what her behavior is. It may, she may be a little bit slower, uh, maybe a little more frustrating, but the end product may not be that different. If I've got somebody who is doing just enough to get by, wants to make sure his parents don't bring him back home, you know, from college, he's got his buddies that are ready to go to happy hour, and uh if he's got a typewriter versus a computer, or you know, a a word processor to do the task, what we see as far as that end product, that interactive behavior probably would be very different um, as far as that interaction there. But then if you've got the, if we actually added that third variable of, um, if it's a task that they do once a year versus if they're doing it three or four times a year, then we might actually see that interactive behavior change even more depending on those other two variables. And so when I explain this to people, I'll say this is a human factor specialist is going to be able to come in and unpack a situation and look at, okay, what are people trying to accomplish? What are the attributes of the human experience that matter for this thing? And then what about, you know, this, um, I've been saying tool but I really think more about the context than the tool right. is part of that because you've got the psychosocial piece you've got you know for the oil and gas I'll say are they doing this in the North Sea are they doing this in the Gulf of Mexico because um, all of that matters as well but it helps to unpack a little bit and I said people who are trained in this can put this together and help unpack it and put it back together so that we can have the most efficient effective and safe interactive behavior as possible um, but that's it's unpacking it and putting it back together and so it's we all know that that's a lot of different disciplines that I've just right. described yeah. right <laughs> so you've got you know biomechanics cognitive engineering you've got task analysis you know um, a psychosocial you know stuff you've got t- tool building it's a lot of different things but when I'm talking to industry they don't care about that they don't need to know that they don't need to know that you know a human factor specialist needs to have some basic background in all of those things but they need to have a parsimonious way of understanding why it's difficult and then being able to point to examples and so it's a tool that i've been used uh, i've been using um that can be effective and it's also helpful for sort of teaching students and coming up with examples
3: my mind's kind of blown now that's brilliant <laughs> uh, so obviously we we're talking specifically about communications here and i'm just thinking about what we do in terms of this podcasting and um and things like that from a human practice perspe- perspective how does using the trial play specifically into communications how would we use that on a on a day-to-day basis i guess
4: on a day-to-day basis i would say that um So, I'm not exactly sure with the podcast. I'd have to, I don't know that business very well, but uh, (laughs) any other. Yeah. So, I would say, uh, as a tool, as a practitioner tool, um, I would say to help if I were going in and consulting, let's say, um, and somebody brings me a problem and that this is this problem that we're having, um, it's something that I would use and kind of pull out, you know, my little cheat sheet that I have and say, okay, where do you think this problem is and why? Do you think that this is about the task? Do you think that this is, um, that we're asking too much of the person or do you think we haven't accommodated the fact that they've got to do visual scanning and, the labels are crap and they can't see the labels or that the there's, it's always really foggy and they can't see what's going on. Or is this about, you know, the quality of the tool or is there a bad psychosocial environment or is it really, really cold outside? So, you know, let's sort of unpack each one of these things or just what's going on. Even if we can't identify the problem initially, let's talk about what's happening in each of these spaces. And, um, And of course, there's a lot more, there's a lot going on in each of those spaces, but it's a nice way of unpacking a problem um, first. And um, I think that would be a way of uh, working with people. Um, initially.
1: You know, I learned something today. I'm going to take that home. And next time my wife asks me to change a dirty diaper, I'm going to say, okay, well, let me look at the task, the tool and the motivation. And uh, I'll explain to her where the problem is and why I don't want to do it.
4: <laughs> exactly. I think that would be all about motivation. My friend.
1: <laughs> exactly. That is, that is it. Uh, so, I mean, we are science communicators and in order to communicate that science, we have to be good at something. What are we good as human factors practitioners? What are we good at communicating?
4: Well, I think that that um, practitioners, well, that's, you know, the the practitioners aren't monolithic, right? I mean, I think that that is um, got to be, they're going to be good at communicating what they're good at communicating. I think what we need to be, you know, generally good at communicating is uh, what the findings are and um, and how those findings can and need to be integrated um, and I think that's the that integration piece is um, a really big challenge and that um, that really has to do with listening and it could be tool too that the um, the triad could be used as a reflective Um, device to be able to say hey this is what I think I'm hearing or this is what I think I've learned is that this is kind of what this space is that you all are living in and it seems like there might be a problem here is that right? Does that sound correct? And this might be a way for us to address that. That could be another way of looking at it because it's always got to be about in order to communicate you've got to listen and uh, really know that you've heard it and that they've been heard.
3: I mean that that seems like a really big message for us to be listening and then to do that, to, to do the reflective piece. Is there something that you've maybe observed in human factors practitioners as a cohort that we could generally improve? Um, something that, you know, maybe a, a character trait that we all share just by the nature of being human factors practitioners that we could, uh, um, that the beast that we are, what, what could we improve as a, as a cohort?
2: Well, now that's loaded. <laughs>
3: you think gotcha exactly
2: Exactly. somebody i'm not
4: a practitioner and uh to say that um i think that uh as people so i'm not going to say practitioners i'm going to say as people (laughs) i think it's real easy to get into the us and them uh mindset and uh if they would just listen if they would just understand uh why don't they Um, and, uh, as opposed to focusing on, um, how can I help them and that they're struggling with this too and understanding the demons and beasts where on their side of the fence and, uh, trying to fit in with that and, um, and to be able to, not just speak the language, because I think that actually, as human factors folks, we do a pretty good job of speaking other disciplines' languages and um, other technologies' languages. But more than that, understanding the, the constraints that they have and the motives that they have, and um, that we have to fit within that. And um, and I think a good example of our moving towards that is um, that we're, you know, we've been able to integrate into agile programming. I mean, that's spectacular, really. And um, and so I think those kinds of things, and it can be in some some really recalcitrant, recalcitrant uh, kinds of populations that can be tough, um, where they really just see the humans as the problem. And so why in the world would I want to talk to y'all about the humans that are the problem? I know I find that a lot. And <laughs> so uh, the thing that's interesting uh, about that is... Probably one of the most powerful communication tools that I have when I'm talking to industry folks is uh, graphs with data. So, when I say I did this study in this experimental way and I show that this happened in this way, and they see, because a lot of them are engineers, and they want to see that we can do empirical work and show that these things make a difference in performance. Which ultimately makes a difference in the bottom line, and um, that's when they really started sitting up and going, "Oh, she's not just talking about that she feels this way or sure. she has an opinion this way because you know she's got a, a PhD." It really is. I have evidence around this, and um, and that made a big difference. So I think the evidence in a lot of ways makes can really be impactful.
1: Yeah, that's definitely been sort of a light bulb moment a lot of times, uh, for, for other people who don't quite get what we do, uh, when you show them sort of the data, when you show them a graph, it's because we speak different languages, they speak in data and numbers. And if we say, if if we provide recommendations without that data or without those graphs, then they think it's just on a whim because they need, they need to see the numbers to back it up. And so that's that's something that I found effective in my everyday work is exactly that show them the graphs. How might we be able to better communicate with folks, uh, human factors, people to non-human factors, people just in general, um, like, uh, like the general public, is there a way that we can communicate to them effectively?
4: I think the, um, again, I think it's, uh, not a monolith. I think if we have an approach that is for everyone, um, that's going to be tough. I think it is um, targeting um, who we're trying to get to and and what problem we're helping them address. And um, if it is that we are wanting to bring in Uh, uh, younger people and have them better understand um, that this is a career and that this is a way of actually getting involved in STEM, that you're not in a lab by yourself, you know, or you're not coding in a, um, you know, in a room on your computer by yourself, but you're doing science, you know, these really cool uh, things with technology and science and um, getting involved. So that's one thing to communicate and that's of course just getting involved with the kids and all of that. If it is that we're trying to help people solve problems, um, then it is, you know, going out uh, to those uh, those different, we need to go to those groups and be involved in those groups and not ask them to come to us. I mean, that's, I go to a lot of different industry um, conferences for that reason. And um, and communicate to them. I think, um, but I don't think there's one approach. Now, I do love these commercials that I'm seeing. That I think that is awesome, really awesome, and getting those out there for sure.
1: It's it's almost. Are you reading my notes? Because that's my next question: is how how do we reach people where they are versus you know having um, them find human factors? Because there's at least in terms of discovery from sort of a, a practitioner um, educator perspective, there's two ways in which we've kind of understand that people find human factors as either they've found human factors through um, Digging or human factors has found them through Mm -hmm. some some of these side channels and how do you I Think the the more effective route or the more common route I should say is the one where human factors finds them and That's kind of the next question I have and you kind of alluded to it a little bit with with getting involved with children how do you sort of make human factors meet people where they are uh, instead of having people come to the discipline, right? Like how, how can we be more pervasive as a, as a field?
4: That's, um, and yeah, so that whole idea of outreach, is right. that kind of what yep. you're thinking? And, um, and I think that is where we, uh, can really leverage the fact that we touch so many different, um, areas of life. Right, we're not only in medicine or only in, we're in all of these different areas. And I think it is then that we have to um, get in there, you know, and get involved in um, those areas, uh, communities, and uh, the professional communities, and scientific communities. And And the tough thing is, is that, you know, I'm not uh, you know petroleum engineer. I am not a chemical engineer. I'm not, you know, going to be any of those things. And at the same time, I need to go to some of those conferences to present some of my work so that they know what's going on. And um, and that's a little bit of a burden. It's actually quite a bit of a burden. But at the same time, if I really want to have impact, that's where I've got to go in their world. That's where I've got to go because they're not coming here. And um, so I think that that's uh, that's been my experience. So I can't speak unilaterally for all of the different areas. But I think that as a field, we need to start bringing um, all of us together. So for the folks that are, um, I, I think the HF um, Human Factors at the Healthcare uh, Technology Conference, though, is an excellent e- example of where the, uh, the those folks have, and our folks have come together in a mutually beneficial event. And a lot of that has to do with FDA regulations. So they um, they had to do that. And um, so I think each one of the communities is going to be different. And um, aerospace is going to be different. And computing is going to be different. And so speaking to each one, the TGs could, would be a great source of information about, so how does this work? You know, how are we going to go to, how are we going to be where they are or get to them in their space? And um, is that something we can do collabor- um, in a singular space like healthcare did, or do we need to do it more um, explicitly outreach? Um, I think it's going to be unique.
3: I think that gives us plenty of homework to look at as well. Um, Obviously, this is still day one of the conference, um, and... I've just heard all day about all the amazing things that people are getting up to, and you're all going for happy hours this evening, and I'm hugely jealous. Um, but what is what have you got out of the conference so far? But I guess what are you most looking forward to over the next few days as well?
4: I think, of course, you know, seeing my friends, um, and uh, you know, going to happy hours and networking. Um, I the ideas back and forth it is the thing that just completely. Um, revives me every time I come here and just the hardcore well that's interesting but have you ever thought about this um, and that is always really um, a hallmark and a highlight for me um, I think seeing the um, how many students um, are here um, just seeing everybody back has been just invigorating and I think um, seeing all the feeling, all the energy that there is, I'm really looking forward to continuing to do that. Um, and then, um, I'll be, you know, that for me, it's community. It really is, um, about the community and, um, yeah, and the exciting new things that the EC has got planned and, uh, yeah.
1: Lots to look forward to this week. Camille, thank you so much for coming back on the show.
4: Uh, thank you so much for having <laughs> me.